0: So we're going to Ruth chapter 4, and over the services this morning and this evening we'll finish off this, this short little book in scripture, nestled in between books that deal with uh, the rise and fall of empires and nations and kings. It's a wonderful reminder that God is also so, so interested in the everyday, daily lives of individual people. Nobody is uninteresting to him. Nobody uh, goes uh, past his notice. No one is not significant to God because he, he made us and He is invested in us. And so we began our story. In in, in Ruth 1, in, in the days of the Judges, and we saw how what did that mean? Well, the end of Judges tells us that there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Maybe not that far different to to today. And it was a time of prosperity, and people then started to focus on what they wanted and what they wanted to do instead of looking on God. And this led to God sending a famine into the land, and he used this to grab people's attention, to draw them back to himself. That's a tough thing. I mean, we've no idea really what what real hunger looks like in times of famine. This famine lasted for at least 10 years. We've no idea what it's like to try and raise a family in that. And for Elimelech and for Naomi, raising two young boys in this scenario, that would have been tough. That would have been hard. And so they lived by sight and not by faith. And instead of repenting and trusting in God, The reasons why the famine came, what happened was they took matters into their own hand. They they were able to look from Bethlehem across the plains, across the Dead Sea, to the mountain ranges of Moab, across the other side of the Dead Sea, and they were able to see that the grass was literally greener on the other side. And so they packed up their family and they went to Moab. Even though God has expressly stated, you don't associate with these people. And we looked at all those reasons why. And we we spoke about why we could sympathize with them. Naomi and Elimelech. We we understand that. Desperate times call for desperate measures sometimes. But the reality was that in their hearts, they chose to dishonor God and to honor the God of their enemies by putting their trust in what they could see rather than in God. And then about 10 years later, the famine in Israel is over and The family who left Bethlehem was not the same family that had returned. Naomi had buried her husband and had buried her two sons. Do not underestimate how hard that would have been for that woman. How hard it would have been to bury her husband and sons. And she comes back and she is heartbroken and she is bitter. And she tries to stop her daughter-in-laws from coming back. And it's really sad to know that God is moving again. And to know where that is happening and to be going there yourself. But to say, but don't you come. That's really sad. And Orpah was willing to go, and yet was convinced by Naomi that a new life was possible, but that it was possible to have that new life without God. And so she turns back and goes into Moab. Really, really sad legacy for someone who claims to know God to to leave. But Ruth's not buying that line. She's not looking at that, and she insists on coming with her. Then in chapter 2 we saw we met Boaz and we spoke of the characteristics and trait that sparked this romantic relationship between Ruth and um, and Boaz. And uh, hopefully I didn't get too many people into trouble, but we spent a lot of time dealing with relationships and talking about how they fell for each other. But Boaz, is so generous. It's one of his standout traits. Remember, he is, is a farmer. He owns the land. He's, grain, he's the barley in Bethlehem, the breadbasket of Israel. And yet he still allows for gleaners. He still allows for, for that, those areas to, to go unfarmed, to be inefficient, so that the poor and the fatherless and the foreigner can come in and grab these things for free. Now, he hasn't made an income in over 10 years and yet he's still willing to do that. Such is his generosity, such is his character as a man of God. And once Naomi hears about him, her whole attitude changes from bitterness to, to hopefulness. Because hope's not about trying to be optimistic or sending positive vibes out into the universe. Hope is a person. Hope is the redeemer. And then last week we saw a proposal It was a strange proposal, yes, and we looked at the importance of making an effort for your spouse and getting all, uh, making that effort to give them your best whenever they so often see the worst in us. But we finished on a more crucial point that there is a right way to come to our Redeemer, and there's a wrong way to come. And we come to his feet and we ask for him to do the work of a redeemer and we allow him to do the work. And the last words of Naomi in in chapter 3 was to tell Ruth to wait. Boaz will sort it out. Let him go about the work of redemption. There's nothing more we can add. Rest in him. The woman who had come back to Bethlehem and said, Don't call me Naomi, don't call me Pleasant, call me Mara, for God has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full and have come back empty is now starting to be filled again with the hope that comes from knowing that the Redeemer will fulfill the work. This book, this story, is one of redemption. It's about second chances of how God is willing to give each of us, no matter how big our mistakes, how big our mess-ups, how long we've been messing up for, God will never put people on the scrap heap. He'll never just abandon people and say, well, I can't do anything with them anymore. No, that's not how God works. Rather, he transforms the story into one that will reflect his goodness and majesty and power and glory to the world. And that's our job as redeemed people, to live in such a way with such joy that other people will join us at the feet of the Savior. That's our job. And Ruth is the story of two mighty men from Bethlehem. Boaz, who is the man of the R. And it points us to Jesus who's the man for eternity. And even though Jesus isn't mentioned in the story, he is hinted at by the work of Boaz because of all the things mentioned in the story, the love story, the relationships, dealing with good and bad consequences of choices and decisions. Redemption ultimately is the greatest experience. That's the crescendo. This is the point of the book of Ruth that out of everything that's going on, redemption is the story. It's the crescendo. Being saved is the greatest thing. And it's a shame that when you look at so many Christians, it looks like they've been hit with a lurgan spade and dipped in vinegar, and they just, are you glad to be saved? Oh, yes, praise the Lord. It's just so I am, it's good to know the Lord. You think, oh, it's not good. And yet Jesus tells us in Luke 10, verse 20, what the greatest thing about being saved is. Luke 10, verse 20, he says, Don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So in other words, for all the things that we get as Christians, so so whatever your spiritual gifts or what your ministries are, your popularity or, or what God is doing through you for his glory and for his kingdom, they are secondary. Don't get excited about what God is doing. Get excited about what God has done. Your name is written in the book of life. Praise the Lord for that. Fanny Crosby, a woman who was born with a healthy eyesight but lost her eyesight after about six weeks after her birth, went on to become a songwriter who wrote over 8,000 hymns. A well-meaning minister came to her and said, I think it's a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered you with so many other gifts. I think Fanny had dealt with these kind of comments many times and she responded without hesitation and says, do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one request, it would have been that I was born blind because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. For all the things that she could have had, for all the things that she could have maybe experienced, she knew that being saved was the ultimate experience. It was the greatest thing that she could ever have, which is why she was able to write, Redeemed, how I love to proclaim, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am redeemed. and so happy in Jesus. No language my rapture can tell. I know that in the light of his presence, with me doth continually dwell. I think of my blessed Redeemer. I think of him all the day long. I sing, for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of my song. I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight, who lovingly guardeth my footsteps and giveth me songs in the night, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed, redeemed his child, and forever I am. Redemption is the greatest story, and it's the greatest song that we can sing. And as we come into chapter 4 of Ruth, this love story hits the twist. Every good story has a twist. And uh, Ruth has proposed and Boaz says, yes, yes, of course, I would love to marry you. But there's someone else who actually has the legal right to marry you first. If we want to redeem the land, if we want to redeem the inheritance, if we want to do it right, we have to go through the right process. So I can't marry you until this other guy steps back. And so Boaz had gone up to the gate, it's where they did court in those days, and sat down there, and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, "Uh, sit down here. So they sat down, and then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And if you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So Boaz starts about the work of a kinsman redeemer. He makes the issues aware to the elders as the law requires, and then he raises the issue with the man who is legally entitled to redeem. Now things haven't really changed in about three and a half thousand years since this story took place. Because family is important. And I think anyone here would tell you family is important. But also just as important for many is the opportunity to expand your property portfolio. Because look at how Boaz presents this. He's talking about the land, the land, the land. He doesn't mention Ruth yet. Because for most with money to buy land, land is a really exciting project. It's a really uh, a good uh, prospect. It's a really good opportunity. Maybe if you've got lots of money, a wife might not just seem so uh, attractive an offer. Maybe that's why you have so much money. <laughs> I don't know if Ruth and Naomi were watching I don't know if they were listening in in this conversation. Legally, it should have been them making the case. According to Deuteronomy 23, it should have been them making these calls. But they have someone who's willing to go and make their case for them. Someone to intercede for them. A picture of Christ that I just don't have time this morning to develop now. But imagine having someone in your corner who's not only willing to redeem you, but who also is willing to intercede for you. What a wonderful picture of our Savior. But I don't know if Boaz was given much away by his facial expressions. I don't know if, if, they were, um, if he was able to sort of change his demeanor in any way. But I'm sure everyone's heart sank. Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, their heart sank whenever the man said, Yeah, I'll buy the land, of course. Yeah, of course. It sounds like a great opportunity. Maybe they're saying, Boaz, you're blowing us up. You're, you're supposed to be kind of trying to work it around so, you know, Ruth gets you. Not this other guy. This is kind of going the wrong way here. What, what's happening? But Boaz has not given anything away because straight away the man says, I will redeem it. Then Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I, I can't redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. To, to, Take my right of redemption yourself. I cannot redeem it. So his attitude suddenly changes. As soon as he realizes that there's a girl involved, he goes, no, thank you. And so it would seem that Boaz doesn't really break stride. It's all part of his process. I, I think it's because he doesn't really care about the land. He's got lots of land. He's a wealthy man. He seems to own quite a lot of the fields around the place. He's not worried about the land. It's part of the strategy. So, and then he kind of says, right, okay, listen, you want the land? Fine, it doesn't bother me about the land. But listen, as soon as you get the land, you're getting Ruth. And this is where he starts to get serious. I, I can almost sense that there's a tone change in how he's talking. He says, yeah, you want the land? Okay, but let's talk about the girl. Because you'll be bound by law and bound by honor to father a child to her so that there is an heir for the property that you're buying. So you see the man's face drops, he goes, uh, This isn't for me. I, I thought about the joke of the farmer, uh, I'm sure you've heard it, about he was looking for a girlfriend. And so he put an ad out and says, Girl must be attractive, must be able to cook and clean uh, and have, a, have her own tractor. Please send me a picture of the tractor. And I could almost think this man sort of speaking to Boaz and sort of saying, You know, well, where's. Where's Ruth? Where's this girl? Or can I see the land? (laughs) Can I see what I'm getting into? But his mind is swayed the other way because Boaz highlights the responsibility and the fact that the woman that he'd have to marry is a Moabite. Now this isn't racism, this isn't anything like that there. This is a guy who understands what God has spoken. This is a guy who understands the fact that God has said, you don't bring a Moabite into your fellowship for 10 generations, Deuteronomy 23. He doesn't know Ruth the way Boaz does. He doesn't know the fact that she has proven herself to be a virtuous woman, chapter three, or that she has proven herself, that she meant what she said in chapter one, when she says, don't push me away, Naomi. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. She's proven that. She meant that. And he hasn't seen that. And so he's worried about the legalities of it, he's worried about the impact that it's going to have on his inheritance. There's a few things we can maybe suggest from this. Perhaps um, he has a family already. Maybe he's married. Maybe his wife is there. Maybe she died in the famine. Maybe uh, he is hoping to get married again. Maybe he has a fiancé or someone that he's got his eye on. Maybe he's not interested in splitting the, the land up between more of his children. Or maybe, you know, he does want to get married again. And says, I only came into the market for bread and for milk. If I go home with a wife, the girlfriend's going to kill me. Fair enough. Fair enough. Either way, I think I, I don't want to demonize this guy. I don't want to sort of make it, put him in a bad light in any way. Wherever the reason he has this attitude, I've got a good thing going already. I, I, I'm not willing to take on a wife. Perhaps it's the fact, though, that he's a wee bit older. You know, Maybe that's why he comes above Boaz in the pecking order. Maybe he's just older. And he's closer to Elimelech, and he's closer to that generation. And he says, I I. Don't have the energy or the heart or the enthusiasm to start a family again or to raise a child. I'm too old for that to carry on. And so he says, Boaz, she's all yours. And so this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other and this was the manner of a testing in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Chilean and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, or moreover Ruth the Moabite, or even better than all that, I've got Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Boaz got his girl. Naomi and Ruth have their redemption. They have someone who not only wants them, but is willing to take them in and look after them and provide them and to shelter them. They're delighted. He's delighted. So notice that there was three criteria that Boaz had to meet. He had to be a near relative. He had to be willing to pay. He had to be able to pay. This other guy was able to meet two of that criteria, and he was disqualified at the third. Boaz wasn't. He was willing to redeem, and he was able to get the girl of his dreams. You know, he had never married before. At least that's what we believe. He had no family before up to this point, and it seems like he wasn't particularly interested in any of that stuff until Ruth came along. No doubt, with his money, with his status, with his position, he'd have had plenty of suitors. Plenty of women probably would have wanted to marry him. But he was waiting for God's timing. He was waiting for the right one. He never got nervous. He never got impatient. He never kind of just jumped on the first girl he could have married. Rather, he waited for the right one, not the first one. And he was able to show restraint and was rewarded. And without going into too much of this, I'm sure there's plenty of people here in church this morning who know and would say, make sure you wait for the right one. I know it might, be, it might kill you to be waiting, and it might be frustrating waiting, but it is worth the wait getting it right than just the first person who shows interest. But let's, let's leave Boaz. Let's step back from Boaz and talk about the other mighty man from Bethlehem, Jesus, who was, of course, a descendant from uh, Ruth and Boaz. Let's ask a question, really important question. How does Jesus save you? Why would he save you? How does he qualify as a redeemer to save us? Because here's something that is important to know. One of the truths that most Christians proclaim to be absolutely fundamental to our faith, yet we're not very good at explaining it. And that is, how is it fair that Jesus is our substitute? How, How does that work? You put it in any other court of law, And you say, okay, judge, yes, I am guilty. And the judge says, okay, right, well, we have that confession. There's an innocent guy. Let's punish him. Okay, right, everyone agreed on that? Yes, let's do that. It it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense that an innocent person gets the punishment for the guilty, especially when the guilty person admits that they're guilty. And everyone knows that they're guilty. And the judge knows that they're guilty. So how does that work? spiritually, when God knows where we stand, God knows that we're sinners, God knows that we're guilty, we know we're guilty, and says, okay, I see this, so let's punish Jesus who's innocent. How does that work? Because most Christians aren't very good at answering that question. Because it's crucial that we get this right. One of the best ways to work through the argument of this, uh, and the big word is uh, substitutionary atonement, that God made us right with God through the substitutionary death of Jesus. How does that work? How does that make any legal sense? One of the best ways of describing this to people is working through the picture of the Redeemer of of Boaz in the Book of Ruth. Because Jesus, in order to be our substitute, had to meet the same three criteria that Boaz had to meet. He had to be related, he had to be able, and he had to be willing. Now remember that Boaz was related. Chapter 2, 20 transformed Ruth's attitude. She became hopeful because of the connection. <gasps> He's a close relative. <gasps> there's, there's hope because we're related. There's a connection. He can be our redeemer. And, and underlined uh, even in Ruth's proposal in chapter nine, uh, 3, verse 9. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are our goel. You are a kinsman redeemer. You are a close relative. In the same way, Jesus is related to us through blood. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Drop down to verse 14, and it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh, became human, became one of us through blood. Hebrews 2 verse 11 says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Chapter 2 verse 14, Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood, he, likewise, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one whose power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, he became one of us. Philippians 2 says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He emptied himself and became human. God steps out of eternity into our world, into the womb of a peasant woman in Bethlehem to be born as a person, to relate to us and our humanity. In other words, there's this relationship through blood. He was one of us. That's the first qualification. And it's why the virgin birth is crucial to the Christian faith. If Jesus was not really incarnate, if he wasn't really 100% human, then there, he wouldn't be able to meet this first criteria of being a redeemer. Because he can't represent us. He has he, got no voice in the court of God. And this is why the first attack on Christianity wasn't Jesus' deity. It was his humanity. It was called Gnosticism. Because Satan knew, if I can get this first argument out of the way, they don't have a hope to stand on. So this isn't a small issue. It's fundamental. And it relates us to him through blood. He came into real life as a real baby with real cries, with real problems. Yes, he was sinless, but he was real. Really one of us, which means he knows what it's like to walk on our shoes. And no matter what you're going through, no matter what trials or tribulations, maybe the specifics aren't there. Okay, the, the technology changes and this, the location changes. and But every single emotion and hurt he can resonate with us and say, I know what it's like. I've been in your shoes. I was one of you. The second qualification, was he able to pay? Well, we go back to Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. One of the first things that we read about Boaz is that not only was he relative of, the fat of Elimelech, but that he was of great wealth. Why is that important? Because the Bible wants us to know that he's got the bank account to help out Ruth and Naomi. He's got the bucks to back up his, his status. You see, I'm sure there was other kinsmen who could have said, look, I, I'm related. Okay, great. Here's the bill for the land. Uh, uh, we don't have any money. Well, that's no use. You need to have the wherewithal to redeem. I'm sure Naomi and Elimelech, they had people in Bethlehem. We're told in, verse, in chapter 1 that the family was well-connected, was a noble family. But after 10 years minimum of famine, I'm sure money was stressed and few would have had the means to pay the price of the land, to pay for a wedding, to raise another child. And maybe Naomi returned in chapter 1 and the people that gathered around were her family members, extended family members. And they said, look, Naomi, we'd love to help you, but we can't. This famine's impacted us as we've stayed here. But, and it's hit everyone's pockets, but Ruth and Naomi, they're in deep poverty. They don't need empty promises. They don't need just well-wishing and kind of just, well, hang in there. They needed someone who could actually help them. That man was Boaz. He was related, but he was also able to help. And in the same way, Jesus is not only fully human and related to us through blood, but he is fully God, so he can pay the price. Just listen to some of these verses. Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Romans 2, verse 4 speaks of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. Romans 9, 23 talks, tells us of the riches of his glory. Ephesians 3, 8 talks about preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. Remember when Christ is on the cross? we did a whole series on the words on the cross coming up to Easter. And he said, it is finished. The Greek word is one word, tetelestai, which means finished or paid in full. It's an economic term. Uh, Whenever you're paying off your loan, tetelestai, the final payment's been made. Your debt is cleared. It's been paid in full. And Jesus on the cross says, I've paid the transaction in full. It is done. Tetelestai, it is finished. There's nothing more to pay. There's nothing more to add. I have done it. I have completed the task. So it's needful that we see that Jesus is completely human. But it is necessary for us to say that God, Jesus is also fully God. Jesus is not simply a good man who teaches nice things. He is the God-man. Fully God. Fully man. And just very quickly as we close, the third criteria. He had to be willing. There was a man that we read about in the chapter. He had the means, he had the ability, but didn't have the heart to redeem. We don't really know the details. We kind of speculated wildly about it, but we don't really know other than it impacted his inheritance. Boaz, though, was willing, not because of the legal requirement, but for the love of Ruth so too Jesus is willing to buy us back, to buy us out of our sin, to pay that debt. It was voluntary, it was willing. Yes, he did pray in the garden, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will be done, thy will be done. saying, I'm scared, but I will do it. Hebrews 12 gives us the reason for the joy that is set before him, he endured the cross. John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I am willing to pay the price. You can see it wasn't nails that held him there. It wasn't our sin that put him there against his will. It was his love for us that made him willingly go to the cross, who willingly to stay on the cross, and it was love that motivated him to pay the price. Yes, our sin and God's holiness made the cross necessary, but it was his love and his grace and his favor that made it possible. Now, why did Boaz do it? Well, he loved her. It's an easy one. We're told that time and time again, But why did he love her? Why did Boaz love her? Well, we've talked a wee bit about it. We highlighted some of it. But to be honest, are we to say that she was the only nice girl in the entire town? Is she the only nice girl who was kind and and hardworking? I find that hard to believe. Ruth even asked the question in chapter 2 Why are you showing me so much favor? What's going on, Boaz? Although I doubt she pushed it too much. Be slow to ask for reasons as to why people love you. Because once you start listing items that you love, it makes the love conditional. I love you because you've got beautiful eyes. Well, if they lose their eyes, are you going to stop loving them? Are you going to love them less? It's dangerous. It's dangerous to start putting requirements and start putting uh, lists on it. I love your kindness. Oh, so in those moments when you're cruel or selfish, do I cease to love you then? Yeah. No, no, that's not how it should be. We're called to love one another as Christ loves us, which is unconditionally. Even whenever we feel, even whenever we do unlovely things, we're called to love, and that's the commitment married people make to each other. Better or for worse, sickness and health. I'm going to love you till death us depart. I'm committed. Regardless of what's going on, I'm committed, I am making this vow. But why did God die on the cross for us? Well, because he loved us. That's easy. So why did he love us? Maybe we shouldn't push that one. We shouldn't pull on that thread. What I do know is that even though I'm convinced that there's very little lovable, lovable about me to God, I know that he is glorified in loving me that he is glorified in redeeming me, that while I may never figure out why he would do such a thing in and of myself, I know that it is for his glory that he does. I can say, this God loves me. (laughs) Me, yeah. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. Romans 3 tells us that we are justified freely by his grace. The moment you start saying, Well, he loved me because, start saying, Well, it wasn't free. I earned it because I was good enough, or because I was nice enough, or because I was at church enough, or because I was spiritual enough. The only condition that is on our salvation is that we come to him as we are. As sinners, as guilty. And say, put your cover, your wings over me. For you are a redeemer. What a redeemer we have. One who is qualified to be our redeemer. Next time you're talking to someone. And they say, I don't get this whole Christianity thing. How can an innocent man take all the punishment for guilty? That's not fair. That's not justice. Take them to the story of Ruth and take them through the story of the kinsman redeemer. One uh, story of a man who was related by blood, who was able to pay, and motivated by love, and how he was able to redeem by law. What a picture we have of the wonderful, wonderful work of Christ for us. And tonight we'll be finishing off. We'll look at the rest of the chapter. We'll look at the wedding and what's coming, and what it means for the blessings and what the takeaway is for us as, as people who come to the Redeemer and love him and bow at his feet. Do we expect all those blessings that Ruth enjoyed? Do we expect them on this side of heaven? Is it right to turn around and say, okay, because you're redeemed, you'll have your financial security, you'll get your family, you'll get this. You'll... Or is there a different lesson that we need to learn? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a wonderful redeemer. Lord, we thank you that even though it's it's so tempting for us to try and make ourselves more attractive to you, and we want to make ourselves look like it would be an easier uh, proposition for you to love us by by dressing ourselves up in in, in spiritual works and, and acts of righteousness, and we try to say, Lord, okay, look how much more worthy I am of redemption than other people. And yet, Lord, we see, even in the book of Ruth, that this is not how it works. That it is because of who you are and your great love for us, that unconditional love, that grace that is freely given. Lord, that means that any and all may come. What a wonderful Redeemer we have. And so, Lord, we want to give you glory this morning. We want to give you praise this morning. We want to thank you this morning that that the simple truth that we so often take for granted, that Jesus died for our sins, Lord, it's rooted deeply in the message of the Bible, that it's rooted deeply. And the pictures are there to explain it to us, Lord, that we might rejoice not in what we might do or what we might attain, but that you have done it and that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life because of you and not us. Lord, what a relief to our souls this morning. What that the burden is lifted. No longer are we trying to earn it. No longer are we trying to measure up, but we are free to enjoy the fullness of what it means that freely we have been loved, freely we have been redeemed, and freely we have been brought into the family of God. And so, Lord, I pray Uh, for those who maybe struggle to understand or to explain, that this morning this picture will become clear for them. For those who have been underwhelmed by the picture of redemption so far, unimpressed that Jesus would die on a cross, Lord, I pray that you would soften their hearts and open their eyes, that they might be in awe of who you are and what you've done for people like us. And so, Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. I'm going to invite our musicians to come up and and to uh, lead us in worship, and then we're going to go straight uh, into our time of communion. Thank you, folks.